Well, I'd like to read another passage from Scripture from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and reading from verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I wonder how many of you at any time in your life have had to do a personality test, not an intelligence test, but a personality test. They have many different names, and some of them are very complicated. My favorite one, which will be familiar to some of you for various reasons, is known as the Rorschach inkblot test. It was invented uh, by a German psychologist about 80 years ago, and it's the psychologist version of reading tea leaves, which your granny used to be able to do. And you're shown a variety of ink blots and asked what you see. And there are various possibilities. For example, you may see in an ink blot two people dancing with one another, or you may see an ugly and a menacing face. And the theory is, as the psychologist takes you through uh, these different inkblot pictures, what you see will be a, a kind of revelation to the psychologist of your personality. I have a different kind of personality test that I know as the nativity play personality test. You probably had it in your childhood in elementary school and perhaps 
they may still use the test today. And it's a very simple one. It is, I can tell your personality from the part you want to play in the nativity play. Uh, you're shortchanged if you're female in this personality test, although angels don't have genders, I suppose that uh, girls can qualify as angels. But uh, my observation and my memory was that most of the girls wanted to be Mary. Uh, similarly, my observation was most of the boys did not want to be Joseph. It is not cool at the age of nine to be betrothed to Mary, and it's not cool, especially if you like Mary, to be standing beside her during the nativity play because your pals are going to give you a hard time. And so, if you're a boy, uh, you certainly don't want to be an angel, and you're left with the, the choice. You want to be a shepherd, or do you want to be a wise man? You can, as they say, make your own response now in your heart. You don't need to tell anyone. But uh, let me confess, I always wanted to be a wise man. I'd like to think that this was an aspiration to wisdom, but it was really, I just didn't really like the idea of being either an angel or a shepherd. Uh, and that's the nativity play personality test. And in many ways, it is a kind of test, uh, these little narratives that we have. And I think not least this little narrative that we've just read about the the magi, the wise men, they were almost certainly primitive scientists who came from the East and eventually on their journey discovered the infant Jesus, perhaps of some age now because He is no longer in the manger, in the stable, but He is somewhere in a house. And they have a very interesting story to tell. Uh, that also provides for us a, a kind of story in which we can see ourselves and see how well we have responded to the Christmas story. I think this actually may be the greatest short story ever written. It's only about 280 words, but it tells you almost fathomless depths about these men about God's ways, and also about ourselves. It begins in a way with which we're all very familiar, with a, a strange event that prompts their journey. Uh, they were uh, astronomers who believed that what took place in the heavens had an influence on the earth. And as they were watching the heavens, they saw a new phenomenon in the skies. Uh, the scientists for centuries have had field days about this, exactly uh, what it was. Was it a star? Was it Halley's Comet? How does it help us to date the birth of the Lord Jesus? And in a sense, all of those questions are interesting, but they're really kind of incidental. What is not so incidental, what is so important in this story is that somehow or another, these particular men felt drawn by what they saw 
and they felt it was some kind of indication to them that they should go on a journey. Uh, we don't know how many of them there were. Uh, church tradition suggests three because they brought three gifts. What is interesting about them is that they were undoubtedly in the minority, that there were many of their fellow primitive scientists who saw this phenomenon in the sky, but it made no difference to their lives. And actually, that's such an indication of the way in which God works, all kinds of ways. As someone goes through a period of great sorrow, and it, it leads them to seek the Lord, and others go through periods of sorrow, and it hardens their hearts against the Lord. Some have extraordinary joys, and it, it makes them see, seek the source of that joy. And others have joys and are indifferent to the question of whether there is any source to them. So, what is really significant about what they saw in the sky is not so much what it was, but what God did through it, just as God continues to do that through the kinds of experiences that are brought to us in His providence. Something happens, and it's as though God creeps up on us, and we begin a kind of spiritual journey although at the time we wouldn't ever have thought about it as being a spiritual journey. And slowly we discover that God has been drawing us to Himself. Now, what's interesting about these men is that when they, when they got to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem, they were actually asking a very interesting question, where is He who is born King of the Jews? How did they know anything about the King of the Jews? did they know that a king of the Jews was going to be born? How did they know that there was a king of the Jews so significant that they should come on a journey in order to worship him? The answer probably lies in the fact that they came perhaps from the region of Babylon, other areas to which Jewish people had been scattered. Perhaps if they'd been in Babylon, they knew the story of Daniel and the prophecy he had given of a of a son of man who would reign over a great kingdom, or perhaps the prophecy hidden away in numbers about a, a strange sign appearing in the heavens and it being a, an indication of a special working of God. Whatever it was, this strange event, this providence in their lives, that had very little effect on others who shared the same providence, stirred something up in their hearts, and they began their journey. So there was this strange event, this phenomenon in the skies that prompted their journey. And then there was a second stage in their journey. Actually, there very often is a second stage in a spiritual journey the sign they saw in the skies, and then the wrong turning they took on their way. They did, didn't they? Um, they? They saw the providential sign, and it brought them so far, it awakened them on the journey, and then they made their cardinal error. They thought that they could work it out 
themselves. Star in the sky, child born, child as a king, go to Herod's palace. And you see what they did. They, they followed what God was doing in their lives so far, and, and then they made the great mistake of thinking that they, they now should go the rest of the journey according to their own wisdom. The parallel to that, which we often see in, in our own lives, I saw in my own life as a youngster, I've seen it in so many people's lives, is that for whatever reason God spiritually awakens us, something happens. We begin to, we begin to take an interest in spiritual things, or, or we begin to read the Bible, or we begin to maybe even begin to go to church. And, and time after time after time, we then draw this conclusion, I need to do something about my life. I need to try harder. I need to be better. And it's just at that point that we take leave of what God is doing in our lives and decide that we can make the rest of the way on our own. I'll, I'll live in a way that will compensate from the failures of the past. And as I say, it happened in the lives of these men. They, they took a wrong turning. They made a great mistake, almost a disastrous mistake. And it often happens in our lives too. And the amazing thing here is the way in which they were brought back. What's so fascinating to me, and a little story of about 280 words, uh, they discover in Herod's palace that there are men who know the answer to their question, but themselves have no interest in it. Isn't that fascinating? That they're actually pointed to the Lord Jesus by people who know where the Lord Jesus will be born, but have really no interest in the Lord Jesus themselves. She reminds me of a story I heard the very day I became a Christian. I listened to a young man telling a story of how he had gone to, to a new office in the company he was in, and as he moved around familiarizing himself, he he heard in the, in the typing pool, which those of you who are my age will remember what that is, it was a room where girls would take the dictation of the, of the partners in the company, and then they would go and spend the rest of the day typing their letters. And as he walked past this typing pool, he, he noticed that one of the typewriters was going with a consistency that the others weren't, and every time he passed it, he noticed this until one day he blurted out to a colleague, there's something in that room really irritates me. One of those typewriters goes with a consistency that none of the others do, and it's getting on my nerves. And the colleague who wasn't a Christian didn't really care about whether this young man who then wasn't a Christian would ever become a Christian, said, oh, that will be so-and-so. She's a Christian. And it was those words that began to draw him to Jesus Christ. So here we have these men, and they see the sign in the sky. They then decide that they can make the rest of the way themselves, and they take the wrong turning. And then a third stage in their journey, because they now find the Christ, and 
they bring these presents to Him. Our carols make a great deal of these presents, although we've not been singing wise men carols tonight. We three kings of Orient are the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. We know that the New Testament doesn't say they were three, but it does say they brought three gifts. And the church has made a great deal of that too, rightly or wrongly. At the very least we can say, since this little family was going to spend the next two years in exile, these gifts were an amazing provision for them in a country to which they were not themselves belonging. But perhaps there is something in the nature of the gifts, the preciousness of gold fit for a king, uh, the, the, the incense that was brought that in the ancient Near East was so associated with worship, the myrrh that was so associated with burial. Sure, these men didn't think there was any significance apart from their value, except perhaps they did recognize that they were coming to somebody special. They were coming to a king, and they did, in fact, worship him. It's really a, it's, it's an amazing thing when you think about it, that they brought these gifts. And as they brought these gifts, what we are told about them is that they bowed down and they worshipped Him. Uh, that, I think, is the really significant thing. Uh, in 280 words or so, this narrative climaxes with a a sense of the awe of this occasion in the hearts of men who were only beginning to understand it. And actually, that's what we look for at Christmas time, isn't it? But so rarely find it. A sense of the sheer weightiness of what this event really means. I've never forgotten a Christmas Eve when I was still a teenager, when I was sitting waiting for the Christmas Eve service to begin. I was sitting in the kitchen in our own home in the east end of Glasgow thinking about the Christmas message. And it so overwhelmed me that this would be true, that I felt myself beginning to tremble at the sheer awesomeness of this message. And I thought for a moment that I really was being brought to worship Christ. And that's what Christmas is really all about, being so overcome by the majesty of this mystery that like these men, we find ourselves bowing down low in order to worship Him, to turn to Him, to give our gifts to Him, open our hearts to Him. That's why Christmas is actually so elusive in most people's experience, why the build-up is so great and the let-down so massive. 
because what we really need from Christmas is often the one thing we most resist, that we would be brought to bow down and to worship Him, to trust in Him, to yield to Him, to give our lives to Him. You know T.S. Eliot's wonderful poem about these uh, three kings, these magi, where one of them looks back on the journey and how miserable it was and how they ended up traveling by night because they couldn't stand the people that they were meeting by day. And then he says, we came to see this child. And he says, I would do it again. But set down this, set down this, were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence, and no doubt I'd seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. And you see, that's what we find these men doing. That's what worship of Christ is. It's being brought to see the wonder of the mystery and the grace of God in giving us His Son to die for our sins and to be our Savior, and finding ourselves so overwhelmed by that grace that something in us dies in order that we may live. It's glorious, and at the same time, it seems to be glorious in its costliness in our lives, because He gives everything He is and has to us, and then for us, and calls us in response to give everything we are and have. First our sin that He may take it from us, and then our lives, that He may lord it over us. And when we do, Christmas really arrives, because Christmas is something that happens to us. Christmas is Christ coming to us, and us coming to Christ bowing and worshiping Him because He is our Savior. Something been happening in our lives and mysterious, and yet it seems to be disturbing us, causing us to think about things we've not thought about for years. Perhaps we discover ourselves like these men beginning to make a wrong turning after this Christmas. I'll live a better life. And then we fall flat on our faces again, unless we are re-diverted to discover who He is, what He has done for us, lest our hearts then become filled with awe that God, against whom we have so rebelled, should give His Son for us. And then we come in faith and repentance and with everything we possess. And we say, Lord Jesus, You have given all You are to be my Savior, and I give all I am to You. 
that you should be my Lord. That's what brings true and lasting joy, isn't it, at Christmas time? And it really is what we mean when we say to each other, have a happy, even a merry Christmas. Well, may we have that in our homes, in our hearts, in our lives, in our city. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this amazing story that we've just read together. Uh, so short, we, we could all memorize it easily. Is it really the greatest short story in the world? No matter how long it took these men to come, no matter how long it took these men to return, we know they could never have been the same again, lost in wonder and love and praise, and yet they still knew so little, and now we know so much who He is, why He came, what He has done, how He calls us to come to Him and to trust Him. We thank You for this Christmas Eve. Thank You for these moments of song and silence and meditation and the presence of the Lord Jesus. And as we come, each of us in a different place in our journey, in our pilgrimage, we pray that wherever we are at the moment, You would bring us now to Jesus Christ, to trust in Him, and then to worship Him, and then to live for Him. And this we pray in His name. Amen.